I am a happy woman. God has done wonderful things for me wherein I am glad. And I want to tell you all that I love this body of people. I love you. I love you. And I'm so happy that it's to you that I get to, to tell these things tonight, what the Lord has done. Now, all of us have been redeemed from our sins. We were all lost. Some of us led much more sordid lives than others, and mine was a sordid life. Bad, really bad. And so that, I just say that to, to remind you that God is able to redeem to the uttermost all that come to him through Jesus Christ. Um, you know, when I came here, my name was Ann Plant. A lot of you remember that. Susan Spivey used to call me the talking plant or the plant that answered back. And uh, so you remember that I was Ann Plant, and that's because I was married to a man named Jake Plant. And for a lot of years, I married him in the 60s. And um, uh, it was not the best situation. Uh, Kay and Jenny were very young when I married him. And uh, uh, their father uh, was deceased. And not, not at that point, but later on we learned that he had been killed in 1968 in an airplane crash. Uh, but anyhow, I was married to Jake when they were very young. And um, he didn't like to work, so I worked. I worked for 14 years as a waitress. He didn't like to live in one place, so we bummed a lot. We were bums. We went to Florida in the summer, uh, in the winter, and we went to Chicago in the, in the summertime. And uh, we went to lots of places in between. I've been in every state in the Union and lived in most big cities in the United States and worked in many, many big cities. And uh, we did a lot of things that were wrong and bad. But the Lord somehow never let us have to pay by going to prison or anything like that. I mean, the Lord was just gracious. He was just gracious to us. Well, one night in 1970, I... Um, October of 1970, I was working in a restaurant in Fort Lauderdale. By this time, Jake and I had had two babies. My son was 10 months old in October of 1970. My little girl was two. And uh, I and Kay and Jenny were like, um, I don't know, 12 and 14 or something like that, maybe a little older, almost you know, 15. I came home from work that night. I'd been working 12 hours in a restaurant. That's tough. That's a long 12 hours. And it was on a Sunday night, a Sunday that I'd worked. And when I came home, I walked into this little shotgun house that we had in South Florida, uh, living room, kitchen, bedroom, bath, bedroom, front porch, back porch. Uh, no driveway, dirt front yard, but lots of trees. And it was, you know, it was all right. So I came onto the porch and I said, uh, I'm home, you know, like that. And I walked in and, and he was um, very drunk on the couch. And the two, my two girls came to the door between the living room and kitchen. And uh, one of them, Jenny was holding the baby. He was 10 months old. And Kay was holding a pot and a dish towel. She was wiping a pot. And I could see that they, it had been a very difficult day. And so I went to them and embraced them and took the baby out of Jenny's arms and tried to comfort them and tell them to go ahead and get ready for bed. It was late. And uh, when I came back into the living room, he was gone. He was in, uh, had passed out on the bed. So I put on a little robe, and I sat down on the I got the children settled, and uh, the little baby boy slept in our bedroom. And I sat down on the couch, and I smoked very heavily at the time, and I was smoking. 
and trying to unwind from the long day. And I sat there, and Kay had told me that that day he had hit her with a pot because she didn't get some soup heated up quickly enough. And he'd, he was very abusive to me. I took a lot of beatings, but he had never hit the children. So on this day, I decided on that night, if he kills us, and I knew if he caught us, he would, he was capable of killing us, that I would, I was going to take my chances, and I was going to take my children and leave. I was 32 years old, and I had never driven a car. He wouldn't allow me to drive a car. But Kay had worked with him out in the yard many, many hours and hours and hours, helping him. She could reach into a toolbox and pull out a 5 8 open-end wrench when she was five years old, you know. And so I knew that she knew what those pedals were down there, and she knew how to work that stick that came out from the steering wheel, and I didn't know how to do that. So I decided that I would make her drive, but that we were leaving. We had a 1955 Chevrolet parked in the front yard. So about 1 o'clock in the morning, I put some clothes on, and I put the robe back over the clothes so that I would look like I was dressed in case he woke up. And I crept into the bedroom where they slept, and I woke them up. And I said, I want us to try to, I want us to leave. Are you, will you go with me? I mean, I was meaning, are you brave enough to try it with me? And they both said yes, that they wanted to go. And we had an, they had an old dresser in their bedroom that we had gotten out of a junk pile somewhere and painted it white. And we didn't know God, and we didn't know anything about God. And we knelt down, me and my two girls, in front of that dresser, and we asked God to help us get away. And so I said, now you just pull these drawers open and you just reach in there and you just take out just what you can get and you put it in the trunk of the car. Don't make a sound. Go out the back door, around the house, open the trunk, put the things in the car, and I'll get the babies. I took my sewing machine and some new Tupperware cups I just bought and every penny that was in the house. Didn't take a car registration. I mean, and I didn't have enough sense to do that and I certainly had, we had no driver's license or anything. So we got around and we got in the car and I told Kay she was going to have to drive. Well, that sweet thing got behind that wheel, 14, 15 years old. And of course, when she turned the motor over the first time, it sounded like a bomb went off. And it was right outside the bedroom window and I just, you know, we were just, we, we were just paralyzed. And it didn't catch and the second time it did and she put it in reverse and somehow backed it out of the yard and put it in first and we rounded the corner and we were gone. It took us three days to get to Louisiana. We were so frightened to be on the road in the daytime, and we took all back roads. Anyway, we finally made it to Louisiana. That was October 1970. My family welcomed us and provided for us. We got a little house, and anyway. And in July of 1971, I decided to move to Atlanta, and my sister had been converted in April of 1971 at an Easter service when the congregation was singing one day, one day he loved me, one day he saved me. And it was, she was so moved on the chorus of that song, the Spirit of God made the gospel real to her in the singing of that song and she went forward and was converted. So when I went to Atlanta, she began to witness to me and I said, get off my back, shut up. Don't tell me about God. What do you know about anything? You've been married to this same person, got these nice little kids, got this nice little house. What do you know about anything? Just shut up. Because I just disdained that. Well, she didn't give up. I mean, she is a meek little thing. She is not at all like me. And she, but she did not give up. I mean, that was the Lord. She didn't give up. 
she kept on telling me I needed to come to church. I needed to trust Jesus. So I said, okay, okay, just shut up and I'll go. So I went one Sunday and this redheaded woman came up to me and she said, hey, darling, I'm so glad you're here. We just love you. Oh, I cannot tell you how I hated her. I'd sit right down on the front row, right, you know, I always have sat right here where Rebecca, all the years I've been here, I've sat second row. So I sat right down in the front where I could hear everything, and of course, the preacher just, I just thought he was nuts. I mean, I just thought he, he was going to just fly apart if he didn't go somewhere and relax. The way he carried on up there preaching and quoting scripture and everything. And I'd go out and light my cigarette and just, oh, I just, oh, oh, you know. Well, but all of a sudden, nothing was really fun anymore. I mean, I had heard the truth, and I had made up my mind no to that. But it just, things just weren't fun like they had been before, you know, talking nasty and doing bad things. It just wasn't quite as much fun. But I went to church several times, and uh, Betty Andrews, this redhead, kept coming and telling me she loved me. And I thought, if that redhead tells me she loves me one more time, I am going to flatten her. <laughs> I mean, I could not bear this woman. Of course, you know that after I was converted, she turned out to be one of my best friends, and we taught Sunday school together for years and did inner-city mission work and all kinds of things. Well, anyway, um, I'd, been, I'd been to church several times. I was still leading a terrible life, terrible, terrible life. And... Um, my, my father, I, I was out doing things I ought not to have done, came in late one Sunday night, got a telephone call at 8 o'clock the next, I mean, got, came home late one Saturday night, got a phone call at 8 o'clock Sunday morning saying that my father had been burned very badly at, at the plant. He worked at a chemical plant in Louisiana. So I said, well, I'm going. So I got on a plane. My sister and I got on planes. We left all eight of our children. I had four. She had four. We left them all with my brother-in-law. We flew to Louisiana. And my daddy was on a burn unit. They have very sophisticated burn units in Louisiana because of all the chemical burns and things that happen to people. And so I went in to the room, and my father said, there's my two sweet girls. They let us in because we'd come from a distance. And my daddy said, there's my two sweet girls, and it was like a knife in my heart because my daddy was a decent, good man. I'd never seen him do a bad thing. And I knew that I was not good. I was not his good, sweet girl. So I wedged myself between the wall and the bed, and I looked down at his burned body and his swollen lips, and he was all burned up, and oh, it was terrible. And I, let, I stood there looking at him, and the Spirit of God said to me, You think your daddy's a good man, but look what's happened to him. How do you expect to escape? And my daddy had been burned in this accident, and he was good. I was going to burn forever in hell. I was not good. And I didn't understand that being good and not being good was, wasn't the issue, but the point, was, the point was I understood what God was saying to me. I knew it was God speaking to me, and I knew exactly what he was saying, and I knew exactly what he meant. But that drove me nuts, and I went out of that room, and I didn't come back for three days, and I went out and I partied and did, bad, did things out not to have done, didn't talk to my mother, didn't see how my dad was doing, didn't talk to my sister. <laughs> Hang it, I'm going out and have a good time. I was trying to find something that would satisfy the flesh and shut up that voice that was telling me that I was wrong. So finally, on Saturday, uh, about on Thursday, I went back to the hospital. My sister said she had to fly back to Atlanta. Her husband was going crazy with all eight of those kids. So she went home, and I stayed. And on Saturday afternoon, on August the 15th, 1971, 
I got on a jet, and somewhere about 35,000 feet in the air between Atlanta, between Baton Rouge and Atlanta, I looked out, and as far as I could see, we were above the clouds. As far as I could see, it was white like whipped cream. And it was quiet, and it was peaceful. And I pressed my face against that pain, and I thought, God, that must be what you're like. You must be like that. You must be quiet and pure and white. That must be what you are. All oh, that I'm not, that must be what you are. But, oh, I won't. I, I, there's nowhere for me to go. I, I'd done everything, and there was no place left to go. And I just said, Lord, I, I said, God, I didn't call him Lord. I said, God, I give you my heart. I give you my life. If you let me live to get off this airplane, I will serve you every day of my life as long as I live. And I didn't know that he saved me right there. I thought you had to go down the aisle. I told him I'd go down that aisle tomorrow in that church in front of all those people. I'd do that. And I didn't know that I was saved right then. I didn't know that till later. But one thing I did know was I could not curse anymore. I had a terrible bad mouth. And I got off that plane. If things didn't go just right, my luggage didn't come on time. There was not a cab there. There was not this. I was ready to curse. See, get with it. I want to go. So I, I knew that some power had come in because I could not say bad words anymore. I could not say them. And I knew something big had happened. But I went to church the next morning. I gave the invitation. I ran down that aisle and prayed with this woman. I thought she was making up this prayer. I didn't know it was something written down. But it was the most beautiful words I'd ever heard in my life. Lord Jesus, I know I cannot save myself. I know I'm a sinner. Come into my heart and save me. Anyway, the Lord did that. He saved me. <laughs> he saved me. He saved me through and through, forever, eternally. So that night, I got baptized. Well, in those days, in that church, they baptized before the service started. So I came, and I had a dress on that was about up to right here. And um, it was very short. So I came to church in that dress. So I got baptized, and I got dressed, and I came down, and I sat in the pew next to my brother-in-law and my sister. So I'm sitting there, and I'm, I mean, I'm pulling for all I'm worth. I am pulling, and I am stretching, and I am trying to get that dress down over my thighs. And because I was clean, you see, I'd been dirty, and now I was clean, and I, I wanted to cover up. And so I, my brother-in-law said, what is wrong with you? And I said, my dress is too short. And so I opened two hymn books and laid them over my thighs. And that's how I went through that service with hymn books on my thighs. But I was covered, praise God, because I was clean. And I went home and we sewed something on the bottom of our clothes and made things. And oh, I'd wake up in the night and I'd just be laughing. I'd say, Ann Plant, you finally did something right. You got saved. You finally did something right. So, anyway, I was just, it was just glorious. All I read was the Bible. Just didn't want to read anything but the Word of God. Was at the church every time the doors opened. Wish they had extra services. And my sister and I didn't know anything about the rapture. We were trying to prepare ourselves to take the mark of the beast. And we went to church and he preached on the, pre on the, on the rapture. And we were poking each other. Did you hear that? We won't be here. I mean, that's the way we were. I mean, we were just absolutely just wild with this faith, this God, this Savior. Am I taking too long? I'm not even... Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> So, so anyway, just, just absolutely. Anyway, I had a, uh, of course I worked as a waitress, see. 
So I'm reading, and I went out and paid $16 for the biggest Bible I could find. And I thought that was a ridiculous price. And it had cardboard covers, but I didn't know any better. Anyway, I brought that thing home, and I tried to read it. One night I was in Romans, and I came to Romans 1, 17, or 18, Joshua lived by faith. And I saw a letter beside it. So I thought, well, I wonder what that means. So I looked over here, and I saw a letter that corresponded with that letter. And it said, H-A-B-2 something. I thought, H-A-B, what in the world is that? Well, I looked in the table of contents, and I saw Habakkuk, and I thought, well, that must be what H-A-B is. So I turned over to the scripture, and there it was, the just shall live by faith. And I thought, well, isn't this neat? They, they've got it wherever you can just find it again. And so I kept reading, which is what the Lord wanted me to do, and I came to the verses in Habakkuk, Woe to him that giveth his neighbor to drink, that he might see his nakedness, and so forth. Well, I served drinks to everybody. I mean, if they didn't drink, I was mad at them because their bill wasn't high enough and I didn't get big enough tips. I mean, that was what you did. You served alcohol. I just got on my knees and I said, God, I'm your child. I don't know what I'm going to do if I can't serve. I mean, I, but you know you said you'd take care of me. I've got these four children, so I'm going to quit that job. I had a Jewish boss. And I knew I was. this was my first time to take a stand for Jesus. I made up my mind. If he laughed at me, I was going to kick him right in the shin, but I was going to go tell him <laughs> that I'd been saved and I couldn't work there anymore. <laughs> and so when I went and I told him that I couldn't work there anymore because I'd become a Christian, and he said to me, Ann, if you've found a better way, you go after it. That was the first time I had to take a real stand for the Lord, and he made it easy for me. So I thanked him for that. Quit the job. The Lord gave me a job in an office. Lord was faithful. Every time I saw something that I needed to do and took that step of faith, he met me, he provided. It was wonderful. Okay, so I was saved in August. And in February, I went to a conference, a seminar. And I heard this wonderful teaching of dedication. And I came home and knelt down and gave everything I had to God. I had a checkbook with maybe $15 in the bank, and car keys to an old car, and my four babies. And whatever I had, I yielded it up to the Lord. And uh, I wanted to have a conscience void of offense toward God and man. And I'd gone to my children and asked their forgiveness. And I'd called my parents and my brothers and people that I... Anyways, trying to make everything right. And there was one person, and that was Jake, that I had not made... Didn't know where he was. Didn't know what had happened to him. Didn't care. Who cares? I'd left him. I was saved. It was over, you know. But the Lord was working in my heart that I needed to find him and tell him that I was saved. That the person who was raising his children was a Christian now. And so I called his aunt's house and I said, Do you know where Jake is? She said, yeah, he's right here. And handed him the phone. So he came on the phone and, of course, he was thrilled, I mean, to find us. But I wouldn't tell him where we were. I was afraid of him and I was afraid to tell him. But he made me promise that I would call him back. So I called him several times. And finally, I realized that if I told him where we were, the ball was in his court. After all, he was in Tennessee. I was in Georgia. If he wanted to see us, he had to make the move. So I told him we were in Atlanta. And he came to visit us, and he stayed a weekend. He apologized to Kay and Jenny for the way he had treated them. He said it was the alcohol. He didn't even remember what he had done. I'm sure that was true. Anyway, he, over a period of weeks, he came. And then finally, he asked me if I would marry him again. And believe me, I wanted a Christian home with all of my heart. I thought Deanne and Sean will never see me do the things that Kay and Jenny saw me do. I'll take them to church and Sunday school. I'll, I'll, I'll live the Christian life. And, and uh, these babies 
will we'll, we'll grow up to, to, to love and honor God. Well, uh, I married him again in April of 1972, uh, just a few months after my salvation. And it was bad from the beginning. It was terrible from the very beginning. I was completely deceived. And just a few days into the marriage, I knew that this was not going to be smooth sailing. There were many, many things that had not changed. I had sincerely sought his forgiveness, but he had never said to me that he had forgiven me. But I, in my zeal, I, I felt like, well, he really has, even though he hasn't said so. So anyway, we went through the six months that he was there with me, with us, that he stayed with us. And things got really, really tense. He stopped speaking to Kay and Jenny. He would not pass them food at the table. He went into their room one day and jerked the telephone wire out of the wall in their bedroom. He just did bad things, terrible things. It was, it was very hard, very, very hard. But I lived in hope. I had the Lord and I lived in hope that things would change and that he would love us and that he would really love Jesus and that we would have a real Christian home. Well, in September came... And he had been working, building a house, a, a, a remodeling in a place. And he had terribly cheated the people. He had taken money from materials and he had bought inferior materials. And he had just done terrible things. And he was telling me all this that he was doing. And I was begging him not to do those things, begging him to make it right. And he just, you know, he didn't want to hear that. So he knew that the time was closing in, that he needed to finish this project. And that he was, I mean... He was about, I mean, he was going to be caught if he didn't get it finished. And he was, anyway, it was closing in on him and he was afraid. And it just so happened that his uncle died and his mother called to tell him. And we went to Memphis for the funeral. We took the two babies, Kay and Jenny stayed with my sister, and we went to Memphis. We came back from Memphis and he went on working, and it was the, during the week, and things seemed to be going along pretty normal, although he, he knew that these people were closing in on him. And they were Jewish people, and they were very, very wealthy, and he knew that he could be in a world of trouble if, he, if they decided to, to really make trouble for him. So he came in on a... He got up on a Friday morning, and he went out to work. And I was at home. Kay and Jenny were in school, and I was at home with the babies. And I was listening to a tape. And on that tape, the pastor said that the 53rd chapter of Isaiah was so precious that it should be written on parchment of gold with letters of diamonds. And I thought, well, if it's that precious, then I must commit it to my heart, to memory. So I laid my Bible on the dining room table, and I would vacuum and dust and say the verses over and over and over. And I had gotten to the verse where it said, As a sheep before her, her shearers is dumb, Oh, he was led as a, as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before, she was his dumb, so he opened not his mouth. That was where I was in my memory, memorization. When Jake came home, it was about lunch. And he said, you know, I've been thinking that Mama was so blue after Uncle James died last week. He said, I think I'll take the babies and go over to Memphis, and I'll spend the weekend with Mama, and uh, we'll be back Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening. And he said, do you want to go? And I said, well... I really need to get these clothes made for the girls. Uh, it was school had started, and I needed to make them some clothes. And I said, I really need to sew some things for them. So why don't you go on and comfort your mother and come back? I mean, I was completely never dreamed that any such thing was about to fall upon me. 
So he said, well, you get the kids ready. So I uh, took my little girl and I shampooed her hair. And she was three weeks from her fifth birthday. And she said, Mommy, I, and I said, Daddy is going to take you and Shawnee. You remember where we went last week? He's going to take you there and, and to see your grandmother. And uh, so Mommy wants to get, get you ready. And so I was washing her hair, and she said, Mommy, are you, are you going? And I said, No, I'm going to stay here and sew some clothes for Kay and Jenny to wear to school. And she said, Well, Mommy, if you're not going, then I don't want to go. And I said, Well, you know, but you know how Sean is. He was just two years old, not, not, two, two years and ten months. You know how he is. He doesn't like for us all to be, he, he, he doesn't know Daddy very well. And I think he'd be so unhappy if you didn't go with him. And so she said that, okay, she would go. Well, I dressed them, and I put some things in a paper bag. Pajamas, a couple of pairs of underwear, a little play clothes. I mean, I expected them back on Sunday. And uh, we went out to the car, and I was thinking of this verse. Of course, this verse was going over and over in my head. He opened out his mouth. And uh, they got in the car. And I said, could I pray with you before you go? And I prayed. And uh, they drove out in the driveway. And uh, I walked to the end of the driveway. And they went up the street. And I stood there and waved. And they made a left-hand turn. And I've never seen them again. Never laid eyes on them again. That was 24 and a half years ago. That was September the 15th, 1972. I had been saved 13 months to the day. Well, of course, it was months. Sunday night came and went. They didn't come home Monday. And, and so I, um, three weeks after they had gone away, a woman in my church came to me. She had heard. And she said, uh, if you got the time, I got the money, let's go to Memphis and look for those kids. Her name was Seal Wingate. A lot of you all know Seal Wingate. She's a tremendous person. So we got in her car and we went to Memphis and his mother was not there, but his aunt was there, his Aunt Mary. And she told us that he had been there with the children. And he had seen his mother. And she had said, you take those children home. Don't do this. And he said, no, you don't understand. I'm never going, I'm not taking them home. So we spent the night with Aunt Mary and we came back to Atlanta. And um, so then I just tried to tried to live I just tried to I just tried to go on and I couldn't work I was so broken I couldn't work and so people gave us food and I, I don't know what we did I mean I know God provided and we lived but one night I was walking in the hallway of the little place with the Bible open on my breast just saying God if you don't give me a word I'll never sleep give me a word Lord I've got to have a word from you and that night he gave me Isaiah 27 3 I, the Lord, do keep it. I will water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I will keep it night and day. That was his word to me that night so long ago. And it's been the word through all these years, all the days and months of waiting. That word has come to me a thousand times. I, the Lord, do keep it. I will water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I will keep it night and day. So my heart found comfort in that word, and that night I was able to rest. Well, I made a promise to the Lord 
that in my that I was I mean I was going to look for him, but I promised the Lord that I would live by Psalm one, that I would not stand in the way of the sinner, that I would not um, uh, sit in the seat of the scornful, and you know what it said. I would not lie. I would not take unfair advantage. I would not do what I ought not to do in order to try to find them. And I would I would live by that word. And someone showed me the verse in 1 Corinthians 10.13 that says, There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. I didn't believe that. I didn't believe that. I didn't know anybody whose children had been stolen. I'd never heard of that in my whole life. I didn't believe that. But that's what the Bible said. There's no temptation, no test, no trial taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, and in all of that, He will always show you a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And there'd be times when I'd just, all I could say was, God is faithful. I mean, I'd carry that Bible with that verse open, and all I could say was, but God is faithful, and God is faithful. I couldn't even, I'd try to cling to the whole verse, and all I could say was, God is faithful. Well, I got an opportunity to go to Florida. A man who had a service station down on the corner gave me an old beat-up Ford. And my sister agreed to keep my other two children Kay and Jenny, and I took off for Florida. I got to Fort Lauderdale, where we had lived when they disappeared, and I walked into the police station, and lo and behold, in the, I wa- in, in the police station, in the city hall where the police station was, there was this enormous oil painting of the mayor of, Los, of, uh, of Fort Lauderdale, and he had been an everyday customer of mine for years at this place I had worked in. I served him breakfast every single morning. And I thought, yes, (laughs) he's the mayor. He'll know just what to do, you know. And all of a sudden, Psalm 1. These people are politicians. They're sinners. They're not righteous, godly people. You know, you promised the Lord. And then, of course, I didn't believe that, that that nobody else had ever been tested this way. I didn't know anybody who'd lost their children. So I went in, I went on into the police department, went in, I was just, didn't really have a plan, found this missing person's place and walked into this little, little room. And in that room, on all, on three walls, there were pegs like this. And on those pegs were hanging thousands of flyers of missing children, little smiling faces everywhere with vital statistics under them. I was just, I just, I just backed out of the room and I went right to my car and I bowed my head and I said, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for thinking that I was the only one who ever had to bear such a thing. Forgive me, Lord. All these little children, and this is just one place. All these children gone, missing people everywhere mourning for their children. And, um, so I asked the Lord to forgive me for that. And, um, and that, um, you know, he would give me a way to bear it. He would give me a way to bear it because I would say this is too much to bear. But that day I was able to say to him with all my heart, if this is what you have asked of me, then I can bear it because your word says that you'll make a way for me to bear it. I can bear it, Lord. I'll bear it for you, Lord Jesus. So I came back and uh, went on, um, you know, (laughs) trying to live, and eventually I was able to work. And uh, and the Lord enabled me to keep the promise about Psalm 1. And 
anyway, we went on. And in 1976, there was a big event. There was a church in, Nor in, in Indiana that took up a collection and gave us $3,000 to look for Sean and Deanne. We put the money in an escrow account. There was an uh, a Christian attorney in my church, and we put the money in an escrow account. And he contacted a detective named William Deere, who lived in Dallas, Texas, and who had said that he had a real good reputation for being able to find people. And uh, he had said that if he didn't find them, we wouldn't pay anything. If he didn't find them, we didn't, have, we didn't owe him a dime. But he was not able to find them. And so that was in 1976. And in 1977, well, he didn't find them, but in 1977, early in 77, he thought he had found them, and he called me and told me to fly to Memphis, that one of his agents would meet me at the airport, and that he would take me to Jake and Sean and Deanne. So I met this man at the airport, and he took me to a car parked outside a factory. And it looked just like, exactly like something that, you know, it was full of trash and beer cans and I mean, it looked, it looked like a real possibility. And so uh, it was early in the day, and so um, he said, I'll take you to where the woman is with the children. And then later, we'll come back when he gets off from work, and you can see him. So we went up to the place where the woman was supposed to be, and I was trying to figure out a way to get into the house. So I went to the health department, and I got some pamphlets and things, and I put a scarf on my head, and got me a clipboard, and I knocked on her door, and I told her I was from the county health department. He knew that she had recently had a baby, and that I needed to come in. And she had about six or eight kids, I don't know, and I'm going to tell her how to take care of her baby. I mean, it was just ludicrous. But, of course, I was looking for Sean and Deanne, and uh, so I was, I was willing to do anything to try to get in that house. And, I, of course, I did gain entrance. She, was, she let me in. She didn't hesitate. She believed me. And she had all these pictures of these children on the wall. And I said, are these your children? Yes, this is this one, and this is this one. Well, none of them were Sean and Deanne. It wasn't my children. And so then I, we went back to the factory, and the man got off from work, and of course it wasn't Jake. So I went home, and I knew that God knew that those weren't my kids when I went. <laughs> I didn't think of that at the time. But when I got home and was going through all of that, I thought, Lord, you knew all the time. Why in the world did you let me go? I go out, I come back, I'm bleeding and all over the place and wounded and scarred and, and I don't know what to do next. Why? Why do you let me go when I never can find them? And the Lord said to me very quietly in my heart, Anne, I did not send you. I never sent you. And I'm going to read now from a letter that I wrote to one of my daughters. Slowly but truly, I began to learn that God is not responsible for things he does not ask of us. Now, I hadn't even been to the Institute yet, remember, but the Lord was teaching me. I began to understand that I am to obey, trust and obey, and not initiate. When God leads, he enables, and his plans are never thwarted. His way is always fruitful. He was teaching me, and, and I began to rise above my pain into another realm, the realm of faith, and a real looking to the Lord for His direction. That's what the Lord was teaching me. So that was in 1977, and that was the last time until I met Henry 
that we made any kind of a search. In 1979, the Lord let me come here to the Institute. I was sitting in the Old Testament class one day. Mr. Nuremberg was only 30 years old at the time. He was teaching me Old Testament. And he mentioned this this morning, and I thought it was so ironic because I knew I was going to say this tonight, that in the Old Testament, the children of Israel always look back to the Red Sea as their place of deliverance, their redemption. We look back to the cross of Calvary as the place of our deliverance. And that day, sitting in that class, when he said those words, the Lord came and said to me, I delivered you that day. The day they went away, you can't understand that. You don't understand that. But I delivered you that day that you might know me. I delivered you that day that you might know me. And, and that was, so that's, that's what he was doing. He, was, he delivered me because if I had lived in that situation, I would have never, never, ever come to know the Lord the way he eventually taught me to know him. So I was very grateful. I was very grateful for that. And I didn't understand that. There was a day when the Lord, when I was praying if I might be trusted to look for the children again. And the Lord said to me very clearly, forgetting those things which are behind, you press on. You press on. And I was very quiet before the Lord for a long time. And I said, Lord, you mean you want me to forget my children? And the word came again. You forget those things which are behind and you press on. And I couldn't understand that, but the word just kept coming to me. And finally, I realized that I wasn't to forget my children, but I was to forget the trouble and the hurt and the pain. And I was to press on for the, to know the Lord for the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I was to press on. And so the Lord, in his faithfulness, had just, just uh, taught me so much. There was a day that I was, uh, I was cooking here. And... Uh, by the time you've been in the kitchen till Friday night, boy, you were tired. And uh, I would just uh, crawl into prayer meeting on Saturday morning. And I made the mistake of going in all the way over by the piano. And I couldn't get out. I was trapped. And uh, Jennifer uh, Black was sit sitting next to me. And she was 15. And my daughter was about 15 at that time. And I looked up and I saw this little soft cheek and this blonde hair, and her face was bent over a hymn book, and she was singing. And the devil said to me, Deanne's about that age now. wonder how she looks. And it, I, I was dying. I thought to myself, I'm sitting right here in this room with all these sanctified people, and I'm dying. <laughs> I'm dying, and I can't get out. I can't get out. I'm dying. This is terrible. I was hurting so bad. And... We finished the song and began to pray, and Blanche began to worship. She began to worship the Lord. And all of a sudden, I realized what she was saying, and I turned my head, and I looked at her, and she had her face back like this, and she was worshiping. Prayer was just pouring out, and I just felt my spirit rise within me. I felt all the darkness go away, and I could look at Jennifer and smile and say, I'm glad you're here, and... But the Lord did that for me that day. He did that for me. It was years later that I was able to tell Blanche about that. He's done many wonderful things. Well, last Sunday, I'm almost finished. Last Sunday, I was in Louisiana. And I was at Jerry White's church. New Covenant Bible Church, Denham Springs, Louisiana. 
That's the church where Marcy Boudreaux goes when she's home. That's the church where Ralph and Paige went. That's the church where uh, Marcy's parents are on staff. They're in Denham Springs. I was there. My younger brother attends there, and so I was there with my brother. And on Sunday night, the 16th of March, two weeks ago today, a young woman in that church was brutally murdered. She had gone with her husband to the theater. They had parked in the back of the theater. He had gone around to buy the tickets, and two men had come in a car, and they had blown her away with a shotgun. Her name was Stacy Kemp Harris, and she was 24 years old, the mother of two. Her parents were faithful workers in the church, had worked years with the children in that church. And on this Sunday, this girl had been gone one week. Jerry White had all of her family there and all of his family there. On Thursday, they had arrested the husband for first-degree murder. He had hired these men to kill this young wife. But God had had a sheriff's deputy who was doing moonlighting at the theaters. He heard the gunshot. He saw the car. He pursued it. They rolled the car, escaped on foot. He captured one of them. He told everything he knew, and the day after they buried the girl, they came and arrested the 26-year-old husband for first-degree murder. Okay, they, he had had her killed on Sunday. They had arrested him on Wednesday, and this was last Sunday morning. The Harris family was there, all lost people. The Kemp family was there, all God's people. And Brother White came out, and he said, you know, this is a memorial. He talked about what a bad week it had been, how shocked, how hurt. Nobody understood. So many questions. But today, this is going to be a place of safety for both families. A place where God can begin to heal, comfort, restore. A place where no questions will be asked. We're going to concentrate on God's truth. We're going to sing the great hymns of God's truth. There are two microphones, one on each aisle. When we finish singing, you come and read the scripture that God has given you through the week. And when we finish reading the scripture, then you come and you pray. And when you finish praying, then I'll, I'll close. And that's all we're going to do. The service lasted an hour and a half. It was absolutely magnificent. And throughout that service, through the singing, and through the scriptures and through the praying, I wept again and again as God brought before me his great faithfulness to me through 24 and a half years of loss. Their loss was seven days old. My loss was 24 and a half years old. But God, you don't change. Just as you've comforted me, provided for me, guided me, led me, taught me through these years and been all in all to me, so you can be to these dear ones sitting, sitting here today with this fresh loss in their hearts. And I just kept thinking of all that God had done, of his great faithfulness to me and my children through 24 and a half years. It was so wonderful for him to call it all back to me. And I said, Lord, this is like a memorial to Deanne and Sean today. It was so wonderful. I just can't explain it to you. But now I know it was preparation of heart. That's what it was, previous Lord. And when the service was over, 
when, when they finished praying, the preacher got up and he said, it was one year ago today that my grandson Jonathan died. A year ago, March 23rd, 1996, his five-year-old grandson Jonathan had died of cancer. Some of you remember that. You know Jerry White. You know, the, you know that circumstance. A year ago today. And he said, as the day approached, it was very difficult for my daughter. And so she wrote me a letter. He said, I read some of this letter to you all earlier in the week to some of you at another meeting. And tonight, today, I'm going to read you the last paragraph. And he began to read this letter from this dear mother, how she had gone to bed. And she, she started to cry. And her cries turned to wails. And she could not be comforted. Jonathan, my son, my son. Jonathan, my son who is no more. And she cried and quailed out to the Lord. And her, her husband drew near and prayed out loud and prayed and called upon the Lord to comfort her and give her peace. And then she said this, that underneath all of the agony and the sorrow and the pain and the longing that could not be satisfied, under all of that was the unchangeable goodness of God. And then he prayed, and we were dismissed. And I went to him, and I said, Brother, there's nowhere in the world I'd rather have been than here this morning. This was like a memorial for my own two that I lost 24 and a half years ago. God made him all of his provision, all that he did. He brought it back to me in such a freshness. And I, it's, it's just been wonderful. And I just thank you. Thank you so much for, for this time here today. He said, Sister, I never knew anything about that. And I said, What well, doesn't matter? doesn't matter. God is faithful. God is faithful. It was the great circumstance that he used to break me from myself and to show me who he is. So I went, I left, drove home all day Monday. On Tuesday, Henry and I had lunch. It's one o'clock. I was sitting in a chair looking up some scripture because there's a young woman in this church that I go to every Tuesday and spend time with, a young mother. And I was looking up scripture that I felt the Lord wanted me to share with her that day. And the phone rang. Henry answered, handed it to me. Ain't Ann? Yeah. Yes. This is Jeff. Oh, hi, Jeff. How are you? I'd just seen him over the weekend. He had never called me in his whole life. Couldn't imagine. He said, I've got some good news. Are you sitting down? I said, y'all are pregnant. They've been married 12 years and have no children. He said, I knew you were going to say that. But it's bigger than that, ain't Ann? I said, you're going to move to Greenville and live by me. No, ain't Ann. It's bigger than that. Are you sitting down? Yes, John. I'm, uh, yes, Je uh, Jeff. I'm sitting down. He said, ain't Ann? I believe I've found Sean and Deanne. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> and the, I had the greatest calm, the most wonderful peace. I was able to say, Jeff, why do you think that? So then he explained that he had been talking to his dad at New Year's, my brother. He'd heard about these children who'd been missing all of his life. And he started asking my brother questions. And when they went home after New Year's Day, he plugged Sean Plant into the Internet. And he got an address and a phone number. You see, it is good for something. <laughs> and from January until March... He'd been trying to contact my son. He didn't want to tell me anything until he knew it was the right person. 
and he had never gotten anything but an answering machine. Now, I don't know how many times he called, but he had not made contact. So when he and he had tried again on Friday before he saw me on Saturday. So he wanted to tell me while I was in Louisiana because I could have just gone right on over to Texas. I was nearly there, but still he couldn't make contact. So I came back to Greenville, and on Monday he tried again, and my son answered the phone. And they talked, and he said, yes, he had a sister named Deanne. Yes, he had been separated from his mother since he was a child, a little boy. He called his father's name voluntarily. And he, so my, my nephew gave him my name and telephone number. You know, one of the things I thought about when I knew the Lord wanted me to marry Henry was my name won't be planted anymore if my children ever come looking for me. How are they going to find me? They won't know my name. Well, anyway, he gave me my son's telephone number and address. I thanked him. He said, now, Ann, you promised me you'll call me back and tell me. And I said, oh, yes, Jeff, I'll call you back. I'll let you know. So I went on over and kept my engagement. I sat there and talked to this young woman for two hours. I never mentioned what had happened. On the way home, I went by Fredlands, my good friend Fredlands. She'd invited me over. So she said, let's have a cup of coffee. So we sat down to have a cup of coffee, and she said, I've got this wild story to tell you, Ann. She said, I don't really know where to begin. I'm not even sure I ought to tell you, but i got this wild story to tell you. So I said, okay, Fred, speak on. So she said, uh, you know, Brian's here working on my, my basement in uh, yesterday, which was Monday. Yesterday he didn't feel good, so he laid around on the couch, and then he got tired of that, and he went in and started playing on my computer. And he said, hey, Mom, you know anybody you... Can't, don't know where they are and you want to find? And she said, no. And he said, oh, give me the name of some old college roommate or college friend and let's just see if we can find them. So they're playing around with the computer like this. And my other precious friend, Joyce Edwards, comes in to deliver bread. And she says, what are y'all doing? And so they tell her. And she said, put in Ann's son's name. So he punched in Sean Plant. And the same information came up. So by this time, Fred's like this, you know, she's not sure. <laughs> she's not too sure she should tell me this. She doesn't know what I might do. So she says, so, uh, so Brian punched in <laughs> Sean's name. And uh, she said, now, Ann, she said, no, there's, uh, there's two Sean plants. She said, one of them lives in New York. And I said, and the other one lives in Van Alstyne, Texas. And she said, how did you know that? And I said, my nephew called me two hours ago and gave me the same information. <laughs> After 24 and a half years, I get the same information two hours apart. I just said, in the mouth of two witnesses shall a thing be established. <laughs> so we called Henry. We said, come over here. You're not going to believe this. So Henry comes over and we tell him the story and we're all rejoicing and I said, okay, I'm going to call him at 7 o'clock tonight. And I wanted to wait and get my girls over there. And I wanted Elizabeth and Jenna to be there. And it would be 6 in Dallas. I figured he'd be off from work and he'd be home. So I made the phone call. We prayed. We committed the phone call to the Lord. And I dialed the number and I was just really calm. And uh, this boy answers, man answers the phone. He says, hello. And I said, uh, Sean. And he says, hang on a minute. Well, he had a call on the other line. He was talking to his mother-in-law, I found out later. So he comes back on the phone. Hello. And I said, Sean? And he said, yeah. And I said, uh, my name is Ann Dykstra, and I believe you're my son. And he said, wait a minute. 
And he put his hand over the telephone, and he said, I could hear him this time speaking to someone else, and I thought maybe my daughter was there. And it was actually someone he worked with. Anyway, he took his hand away from the phone, and he said, Mom. (laughs) And and anyway, we started talking. (laughs) We talked for an hour. He said, Mom, I've never talked on the phone this long my whole life. He said, "Uh, but I don't want to let you go. I don't want to say goodbye again. He told me he loved me. He said, I missed you so much when I was growing up. They'd been told that they were abandoned and that their mother was cold and mean and not anyone they could ever love. That's a good description, don't you think? (laughs) But anyway, he was precious. So he left home and he went down to my daughter's house to tell her that that their mother had called. And my daughter called me. And she uh, said, did you look for us? And I was able to assure her that I had looked for her. And then she said, do you know how old I am? I gave her her birth date and the hour and place of her birth and assured her that I knew how old she is. (laughs) Anyway, my son said, he called me back the next night, talked an hour and a half, and we've talked every night. I can't go to bed without talking to one of them. I've talked to his wife. I have a, he's been married six years. He has a 14-month-old son named Kelly, and his wife is pregnant with their second, a little baby girl. And he told me on Wednesday night, Mom, I told you last night we were going to name her Kelsey, but tonight I want to tell you we're going to name her Kelsey Ann. (laughs) So I have a new namesake coming. And uh, tomorrow Honey Bear is going to... Anyway, I told Kay and Jenny, of course, and Kay wanted to come so bad, you know, she wanted to be a witness, this great thing. And she was in such conflict because she's got all these children and her husband and the ministry and homeschooling and, you know, all the things that go along with that and... She didn't know what to do, and her husband said, if somebody had died, there wouldn't be any question. You'd go. This is a resurrection. You have to go. Wasn't that a good word? (laughs) And that set her free to come. So she got here yesterday, and in the morning, Honey Bear's taking us to Dallas. And our plan is to go to Shreveport tomorrow and sleep tomorrow night in Shreveport. That'll put us about 200 miles from Dallas. And then we should arrive in Dallas somewhere between 10 and noon their time, and I have the directions to um, uh, my daughter's home. And that's where we're to rendezvous. Sean is supposed to bring his wife and baby to her house. And I'm to page him at a certain point on the expressway so that he can get to her house before I do. He'll leave the job site. My daughter's taking Tuesday and Wednesday off from work. I forgot to tell you how much my son talked about the Lord. He told his wife that the One of the sweetest things of all was that his mother was close to the Lord. It was one of the things he was most grateful for. So I just want to say this is to be continued. (laughs) It's not finished. It is not finished. I'm going to see their faces. This poem from the, the line from the Torstegan poem, The years of longing are over. And we behold thy face. I know that's not the primary (laughs) interpretation. But that's what's been ringing in my heart. The years of longing are over. They're over. (laughs) It's all in the past. And God is able to restore the years of the Lotus 8. And make it seem when we see one another. As if there would never been that long hard separation. And they don't understand. They've said, we, don't, we just don't understand. We just don't understand. They have no memories of anything. They don't remember anything about us. 
But my son said, my daughter, my, he said, Deanne and I are never together that we don't talk about you. What do they have to talk about? They wonder where you are and they wonder how you look. They wonder if they'll ever see you again. And so as much as I was longing, so were they longing. That was something. But my sweet Kay told me this on the phone the next day after I told her. She said, you know that verse that's meant so much to you for so long, Mama, I, the Lord, do keep it. I will water it every moment day and night and the city heard it I'll keep it day and night she said what they what the Lord kept was their love for you that's what he kept in their little baby hearts that they didn't even know that's what he kept because I mean they were so ready to receive me and so ready to to love me with no questions asked so we go tomorrow so y'all remember us I thank you for your patience and thank you for your love for me and my family thank you thank you